So as I've, as I've noted, uh, I really wanted to spend the, the first three nights of this week looking at um, refuge, uh, the threefold refuge, refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And as I noted earlier today, I think, you know, it's said that uh, this, as this uh, practice grows or this capacity in the heart uh, grows, you find an, an enormous uh, expanding um, lightening of the heart. Uh, as you just align yourself with the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And I remember uh, listening to a talk of Ajahn Sumedho a number of years ago, and uh, he, he just was like, well, that sounds a little magical, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I, if I buy that. So um, he decided to just uh, contemplate something else. Uh, and, to, you know, when we talk about contemplating Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, it's, it's like contemplating the attributes of, those, uh, of each of those. And so he decided to contemplate the attributes of Coca-Cola and see if indeed, <laughs> if indeed it, it affected the same thing, you know. This needs to be tested. Does it really uh, lighten and brighten the heart to, to stay close to Buddha Dhamma Sangha? And of course, as all good Buddhist stories go, you know, he found out very, in very short order that um, there's something to it. There's, a, there's a, a lifting and an aligning of the heart to... Uh, uh, values and uh, purposes and intentions and uh, directions that are, um, have an effect of lifting us up. It's like the difference between, you know, I think we've talked about um, like, like uh, how wanting, uh, when you're looking at it as a wanting a sense pleasure, how you can feel that in the heart, how it pulls you down. You know, it's, it's a heaviness. Whereas the wanting that uh, is manifest, say, as chanda, you know, the aspiration to practice, the wanting liberation, those kinds of things, when you're in that state, it's a very different feeling. And so it's like you can, we can test this and look and see for ourselves if this stuff is true. I mean, in a way, uh, it's a nice teaching, but don't, don't, take, don't take the word for it, you know? Look and see. Uh, it does one lift you up and another pull you down? And so in, in this sense, we're, we're looking at something that has the capacity to really enhance our practice because the heart has to be light uh, in this whole process of looking and waking up. And in a manner of speaking, as I hope we'll see as uh, I talk about this this week, uh, I think it's even more than just something that enhances the practice. I think in a manner of speaking, it actually is the practice refuge that and discovering what we mean when we say going to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha for refuge and directly experiencing that in, in many ways you know at least this has been my experience that's the practice <laughs> it manifests uh, in a number of ways which I hope we'll, we'll cover um, this week so just by way of sort of setting the stage um, this practice of, of, of uh, refuge in the, um, the threefold refuge is called a refuge in the triple gem, although that's a, a slightly different word. Uh, that's tiratana, tisarana is refuge, uh, the threefold refuge. And uh, the, the Pali in this, the T is three, and the sarana is the refuge. And uh, this word that's being translated uh, as refuge has some other connotations. It has the, protect, uh, the, the connotation of being protected, uh, uh, of being sheltered from harm. And it's one of those things like Andy was talking about today where there were many uh, practices or modes of being at the time of the Buddha, that the, the Buddha was born into, that find their way into the Buddhist teachings, whether it was the uh, various forms of teaching, but there were also... Um, ways that, um, that the culture was organized or the society was organized that find their way into the, the Buddhist practices as well. And this is actually one of them, where um, it was a common practice at the time, you're talking about a feudal society, uh, for people to, um, in a way, uh, be sort of turned to a patron, uh, sometimes a god, but usually a, a worldly patron, uh, to protect them. You know, they, these were uh, warring uh, societies at times. And uh, if you gave yourself over and uh, were willing to take directives from a, a, a patron, then uh, they would offer you protection in, in, uh, in, in exchange. 
And, and so it's interesting that um, in the early teachings we see this practice being sort of co-opted in, in um, uh, Buddhism to, um, but, but sort of manifesting in a much more spiritual way. And, and so that the disciples of the Buddha, the, the people who listened to the Buddha teach uh, and uh, learned from him, um, were moved um, to, to take refuge in him, to go to the Buddha for protection. But clearly it wasn't the protection uh, in a worldly way. It's the protection from um, the, the ravages of ignorance and, and uh, delusion and craving. And uh, the Buddha being a way-shower, uh, and the Dhamma and the Sangha, a way-shower to, to help one to move um, out of that. So it was, it, you'll see this over and over again in the suttas. And uh, one time I, I just sort of did just a, a little study um, to see, well, you know, where, um, who's taking refuge in this way? And, and where does it appear in the suttas? And um, it, it was a very interesting exploration because in very short order, if you just go into the index and look up refuge and see where refuge is mentioned throughout the, the Pali Canon, in, in very short order, one begins to see that it, it, almost across the board, it's um, at the end of the sutta, um, and it's um, usually uh, where the Buddha is teaching uh, some lay follower, and uh, they have heard the teaching. They're already um, in a point of having received the teaching and um, are, are filled with uh, a, a sense of devotion and a sense of understanding and wisdom, having enough sense to know, this guy's got it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go to this person for refuge. And, and so I read many of these, but one in particular that uh, I really loved, I wanted to share with you because it had so much of the, some of the language that you were using, and not just last night, but throughout out the course. And really conveys this sense of um, giving oneself over. And this was, this was a, a, a Brahmin, a layman, um, who was actually making uh, some incantations, as they do, you know, doing, performing some ceremony. And uh, apparently, um, if you see an outcast while you're performing the ceremonies, then it contaminates the ceremony. And so he was doing some kind of incantation, and in the distance he saw the Buddha. And the Buddha's dressed in, uh, like an outcast and looking like a, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a somebody who's uh, in, in a lower class. And um, this um, Brahmin starts screaming at the Buddha, yeah, you've ruined my incantation, you know. It's all your fault if this doesn't work out, you know, you outcast you. And... Um, the Buddha, obviously very equanimous, accepts the jeers and the jabs and um, says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. I'll tell you what an outcast is. <laughs> and he goes on in this, this beautiful, this is in the Sutta Nipata, by the way, uh, 1.7 if you're interested. But he goes on to enumerate what, uh, what his definition of an outcast is. And it includes such things as like, uh, you know, an outcast is somebody who harms people knowingly. You know, an outcast is somebody who doesn't take care of their, their family members when they need care. You know, an outcast is somebody who uses divisive or derisive speech, uh, you know, willy-nilly. And, and um, the, the Brahmin then, at the end of this, you know, one wonderful story, obviously had some insight, <laughs> some light go uh, turn on. And, and here's what he says. I just think it's so beautiful. Uh, first of all, this this bit I love, where they go, it's amazing, it's marvelous, it's wonderful, you know. <laughs> That's how he starts. It's amazing, Venerable Gotama. It's wonderful, Venerable Gotama. Just as one might raise what has been overturned, or reveal what has been hidden, or point out the way to one who had gone astray, or hold out a lamp in the dark so that those with eyes might see objects. So likewise has the truth been explained by Venerable Gotama in various ways. And then he says, I take refuge in him, in his Dhamma, and in his Sangha. May the Venerable Gotama accept me as a lay follower, uh, where, who henceforth has taken refuge in him, 
for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, really packing some power in the level of his insight, um, the poetic way with which he describes it, and the commitment that he makes to um, stay with this uh, person as a teacher. I just I, I love that that uh, the beauty of these kinds of things. And look and see, there's many many different variations on that theme in the suttas. I guess I, I, it touches me because it's how we feel, isn't it? You know, as, as we connect with and and really feel, uh, as we, as we see the fruits of practice, and uh, increasingly give ourselves over to uh, to be trained. So one of the things I read a number of years ago that really stayed with me, I, I can't, you know, I used to not be so good at marking where I read these things, so I don't remember where this was, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was in an essay by Bhikkhu Bodhi or perhaps one by Jana Ponika, because I used to read a lot of those a, a long time ago. But they, they had this imagery where they talk about... Um, uh, refuge is, say, is said to be the entrance way to the Buddhist teachings, and they look at um, the Buddhist teachings and practices as a house, where um, ethical conduct is the foundation. You know, you, it doesn't nothing stand, nothing will grow without that firm foundation, and where the stairway to, uh, meditation is the stairway to the rooftop of nibbana. I really like that one, and then. Um, Refuge uh, was said to be, in this image, the doorway. The doorway through which you enter. And, uh, you know, it's certainly the, the case for many of us as we um, came to these teachings, and maybe uh, often that's doing a meditation retreat, and the, the first thing we do is go to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha for refuge. <clears throat> so in that sense, it ends up being an entrance way. But I, uh, I've seen over the years in myself, and certainly in a, in a lot of other people, that it's 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 not one it's not one of those things that you enter once. You know, you don't just go in that doorway once. It's a it's something that keeps growing and keeps changing and keeps evolving, and we keep entering and recommitting, um, re. Uh, directing ourselves uh, in the, the teachings and the practices of the Buddha uh, over and over and over again with an increasing um, heartfelt commitment. Don't you find that to be true? You know, it, it's like maybe initially uh, we just might go through the motions and say, yeah, okay, I'll do, uh, this sounds good. But over the years of, of practice, and it, it becomes something that runs much more deeply into the heart. It's like you know, for, my, for myself, I've, I, I've noticed it many, many years into the practice that at some point it wasn't coming from a place of I should. <laughs> it wasn't coming from a place of everybody else is doing it and, and I need, you know, even, even like a neediness. But it was as, as you enjoy the fruits of practice increasingly, then the, the sense of um, wanting it in, in the chanda sense of wanting you know, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper to where you, you know, I, I, I want this. This is what I'm about. This is how I'm going to spend my time. <laughs> this is where I apply myself, you know. And, and so the, this, uh, this, I experience this as a, as a way of getting the heart engaged through the years of practice. You know, increasingly, it, we, we move out of the, the, the sense of the, of the head and uh, into the heart as a, a driving force for the practice. And in a way, I think for many years, it, it, practice can be very mechanical. I, I know for me it was, and you know, I suspect for most of us it was, because, and it, it can't be any otherwise, because it, it, uh, it gets picked up as something that has to filter through self-view. So you get this sense of... Um, having to be on top of it, having to accomplish, having to do it right, having to be right, and all of that stuff. And also the sense of um, maybe even measuring our success in practice, you know, based on how many breaths you can watch, or, you know, whether or not you have a daily sitting, or 
well, how many retreats you do in a year, you know? But don't you find that over the years of practice that just changes so dramatically? It's like, I, I just, I never knew anybody who uh, had much success in practice by persisting in practicing in that mechanical way. You know, it's got to move to this place of um, heartfelt determination that is born out of wisdom, born out of understanding, born out of having uh, enjoyed fruits. And so you go, you know, this this is really working. (laughs) I'm getting better. I'm becoming a better person. And and so the, the, the... wish to keep turning to it, to go to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha for refuge, just deepens and deepens and, and deepens through the years. So, you know, initially it, it, it may uh, just be a way to get uh, emotionally connected with it, but uh, gradually over the years of practice it, it, it is much more incre- increasingly heartfelt. So the way that we look at refuge is kind of these two modes. Um, And and this really comes from uh, Buddhaghosa in the Vasudhimaga. He looks at um, uh, sort of like a twofold significance for each of these, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And what he calls the mundane uh, refuge, the mundane going for refuge, and the super-mundane going for refuge. I like to just think of it as the simple you know, uh, going for refuge and, and something that is actually uh, more liberating. It's a, it raises uh, that experience of refuge to a higher level. And so when we, when we talk about the mundane level of um, going to the Buddha for refuge, this has to do with um, uh, contemplating uh, this human being who lived 2,500 years ago and um, considering um, what it is that he accomplished. This amazing uh, event, if you will, um, or awakening that took place uh, on the night of his enlightenment. You know, and and, uh, in a way, um, putting your faith, putting our faith in uh, the Buddha as the teacher. This is is the one who who we um, uh, give the credit to. (laughs) for what it is that we learn in, in trainings like this, on retreat and through our practice. And, and so it has to do with really paying respects to that human being. And so in this um, recollection chant that we did, um, you know, it, 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 it's about um, this worldly human being. You know, it, it's not about um, the, the quality of, of wakefulness, it's about turning to the Buddha. This, this human being. We say he's the blessed one, the pure one, the perfectly enlightened one, impeccable in conduct and understanding, the accomplished one, the knower of the worlds. He trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. He is teacher of gods and humans. He's awake and holy. And that's the, the, the formal recollection at that level. And I mean, when you, you know, you, you say these chants, as I was saying earlier, they, they have a devotional quality to them. And, uh, and some people love this stuff, you know, and you just want to recite that all the time. And, uh, uh, and, and for others, it's not, it, it, it may not appeal in the same way. Maybe it's our nature. You know, some people have like a bhakti kind of nature, and some people don't. And I'm not suggesting that you need to have that to contemplate in this way, but... Um, and I think I think it just needs to be said. Well, fair enough, you know. If that doesn't do it for us, um, it's enough, really, to uh, recognize or, or to acknowledge uh, the accomplishment of this person. It's not that one has to devote oneself to the Buddha, but just to uh, recognize that this is uh, someone who uh, accomplished a, a great deed and is the source of the teachings that we uh, study uh, on a regular basis. And it just, uh, it, it, just to let that in, um, acknowledge him as the teacher, no matter who the, the teacher is sitting here in the, in the teaching seat, the real teacher is the Buddha. 
and, and to, to keep recollecting that and, and remembering that. So one can find it very helpful just to um, give some thought to what it means to to have uh, to be a Buddha, what, what that what that human being accomplished, uh, and uh, it's quite. Uh, quite profound, quite amazing accomplishment when you think about it. You know, that one of the, the primary characteristics is that a, a Buddha is one who um, awakens through his own efforts. You know, that uh, it's not, that one doesn't have a teacher. One, uh, and usually it's, a, it's a, a Buddha arises when the Dhamma has fallen into decline and it's not known. And so this is someone who uh, realizes it for oneself. Is that that right there? When I contemplate that, I like, where would I be without a teacher? Where would I be without people that I can talk to and ask questions to, who have walked the path before me and uh, can explain things to me? So that I mean, it's just an amazing accomplishment. And it, we we say a Buddha is one who has uh, abandoned all defilements, and uh, there's three adjectives that are used here or adverbs, I forget which it is (laughs) but one is totally one has abandoned all defilements, all of them totally there's no defilements left in the mind heart and this is done in a way that uh, we say it is completely so there's like no little persnickety little bit in the booth in the back in the corner in the dark that's still hanging out there waiting to emerge. It is completely eradicated all uh, contaminations of, um, of delusion. The things that, that cloud the capacity to uh, be in and experience the awakened heart. And finally, or irreversibly, that uh, this, this, these, these are gone. They ain't coming back. <laughs> The gone, Jack. You know that that feeling that nothing is going to arise again. I don't know what that does to you, but boy, when I really uh, soak in that, especially given uh, the the kind of walking meditation I had this morning, where it's just you know constant chatter and worries and uh, restlessness and agitation in the mind, you know, and and you consider the possibility of that all being eradicated. Or maybe look at it in a more positive way. Just look at those moments when we have those mini nibbanas, like we've talked about, where there, there we do have those moments where it's clear and things, have, things are not arising. And maybe they're glimpses and maybe they're just little inklings. Maybe they don't last very long. But uh, we do have a, a sense uh, of what it's like. To, to not have the arising of these defilements. It's, it's, it's an awesome accomplishment. And given maybe what we see in our own minds, it's almost difficult to fathom. You know, very, very hard to imagine. I mean, fortunately, I'm, I'm, I was helped by realizing that you know, trying to imagine what the mind of the Buddha is like is one of the four imponderables, you know. It's like, don't go there. <laughs> you can't imagine it. <laughs> Just drop it. <laughs> Just be happy with the little mini nibbanas here and there and, and uh, uh, soak in those. And that will take us to where we need to go. And, and so the, the, the third uh, characteristic of a Buddha, a quality of a Buddha, is, is one who has a perfected virtue. We usually think about this in, in terms of the, the ten paramis, uh, where uh, a Buddha is one who has perfected all of these. But it, it's enough to say, just um, plain and simply, that uh, one is in a state of being where literally it, it, one cannot do harm. One, one cannot do harm through body, speech, or mind. It, it will not happen because the basis for that, those kinds of impulses is gone. It's eradicated. It's like, oh. <laughs> I, just, I, I just can't imagine. You know? And it, what's included in virtue is um, the great wisdom 
uh, of the mind of a Buddha. And I think we get inklings here. Uh, certainly what we're talking about when we're talking about a Buddha is, is someone who completely understands uh, what's going on, uh, say, with people and is able to teach them according to what they need at any given time. Uh, one, one knows how to uh, apply what is needed in the moment. But I think we do get inklings of this through the years of practice. And we just invite you to consider it, look in, in your own experience. That um, Don't you find it to be the case that as the years unfold, you listen more with your heart. You take in, like when, you, when we're talking to, to people who are having difficulty, one is much more likely to be able to listen and not put overlays of the comparing mind or anything like that on what is being said, but actually hearing where people are and discerning what it is, what bit of the Dhamma would be useful. <laughs> you know, how could I... Maybe they just need to be held, but maybe there's some way that they're not seeing some attachment. Maybe there's some way that they're right up against uncertainty and they don't like it, you know. But but this is wisdom. This is the, the capacity to, to know in any given moment what is needed. And we want to be on the lookout for this because it's happening in all of our hearts. Maybe in this mini way but this is what, uh, the, the, what characterizes an awakened being. And so we're beginning to awaken. And, and the, the, the final one in this um, litany of virtue is um, compassion. The great compassion that uh, begins to grow in the heart, uh, uh, certainly that the Buddha embodied. And uh, this has to do with the um, the capacity on his part, you know, you may recall the, the story of the night of his awakening where he spent, the, I believe it was the second watch, just looking at um, the uh, pain and suffering of beings throughout the ages and um, feeling with great, great compassion uh, for the suffering that they were having to endure because of uh, ignorance and craving. And, you know, it's said that that compassion that was so well-developed in him was the bit that uh, the Brahmagat Sahampati pulled for <laughs> when the Buddha almost didn't teach, you know. And he, he said, uh, he, he, he wobbled a bit and said, people aren't going to understand, uh, this is too subtle, uh, I'm not going to teach. And the Brahmagat Sahampati came down and said, do it. <laughs> do it for uh, those who have but a little dust in their eyes. Please, have compassion for those who have a little dust in their eyes. And so he, he was like pulling for this uh, out of the Buddha, acknowledging the great compassion that was there. And, and so I, I think that we, can, we need to watch this growing in our own hearts as well. You know, uh, lots of times when we're there for each other, uh, just watching how like, I've just sort of seen in my own heart how, like when when somebody, a friend, or, uh, you know, a neighbor, or whatever, or, or or a student, is talking about something that they're having difficulty with, and I know what they're talking about, but not because I know something intellectually, but because I've been there, <laughs> I know that pain, and uh, uh, that's that that um, is compassion. And the heart increasingly um, is able to empathize, to resonate with the pain uh, of the people that are dear to us, and and to be there for them in in a beautiful way. So, just to contemplate these qualities or ca- characteristics of a Buddha, it, it can be very very helpful not only to connect fully with Gotama, this human being but also to begin to shine a spotlight on um, how it is that we too uh, are moving in the direction of waking up. And I think this is very important. So at this mundane level, um, going to the Buddha for refuge means 
uh, you know, the, the long and short of it is just recognizing the immensity uh, of his accomplishment and, and in a way bowing to it, uh, bowing to um, one who has embodied this kind of, of purity and, and wisdom and compassion and appreciating. I mean, I know he's not here, but in our hearts we can, uh, we can appreciate that and feel enormous gratitude for the fact that we're heirs to this teaching. You know, one time, um, many, many years ago, I, I was listening to Ajahn Manindo. One of, he's one of the abbots of the, one of the monasteries in the lineage of Ajahn Shah. And he was telling a story about um, a time when he was in Thailand many years ago and at uh, Wapapang, which was Ajahn Shah's monastery. And he, um, he said at that time, which was a very rare occasion, both Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Mahabhua were there. And um, they did the daily recollection of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, just like uh, we've done, and, and like I was uh, explaining earlier. So, you know, both morning and evening chanting, um, they're leading the chanting and uh, re- reciting these characteristics of the Buddha, the Dhamma, a Sangha. And as we do in the monasteries, after each, you bow, you know, and you take your head all the way down to the floor. And uh, in a way, you're giving yourself over for refuge. You know, I'm I'm going there. I'm I'm giving my heart over to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And he said he would watch the two of them doing this. And... um, he said they did it with such humility, or seemingly, anyway, appeared to him, and grace, that they would just completely give themselves over to it, so softly and, and so gently. And he kept thinking about, my goodness, these are, by all accounts, two fully awakened beings. <laughs> and they're able to do this, you know. And it, it, it really helped him to... Um, to join in. He said it was so powerful to see that happen, to see the humility, to see what, uh, what I think this is all pointing to, which is, um, do we have the capacity in our hearts to, um, when we're in the presence of such greatness, just to, in a way, yield, you know, to, to bow to it, to acknowledge it. And feel and not not like it's the right thing to do, but rather because of what that feels like in the heart, <laughs> what that makes possible uh, for us as as uh, practitioners. And it was reiterated in an essay I read a number of years ago by Bhikkhu Bodhi, where um, he put it this way: He said, um, "It's a sign of a spiritually developed and mature person." who, uh, when confronted with something higher than themselves, will react with respect, admiration, and a wish to emulate. You know, and in fact, this, this sense of respect and, and humility is said to be one of the primary uh, or preliminary um, qualities that has to be uh, in the heart in order to develop um, spiritually. And you can see why. I mean, just, just, can, just look and see when you're feeling that and when it's in the heart or uh, what, what the effect of that is to be able to uh, bow in the presence uh, of greatness. Um, first of all, at least this is what I've seen in my own heart, it, it, it has this sense of um, arousing interest and a lot of energy. It's like, how are they doing that? <laughs> how, how, are they, how are they able to be so good? You know, How are they manifesting in that way? And, and so one, one turns to it with, uh, with interest, and, and that creates a, a state of receptivity in this heart. You know, we say the, the, the Buddha is the, the trainer of those who wish to be trained. That's speaking to the Buddha, but it's also speaking to us. Are we the people that um, have that quality of heart? I've said, yeah, 
you know, yes, train me. <laughs> I want to be trained. I'll do what it takes. There's a, there's a humility in that. Uh, and there's a high degree of interest and uh, energy and enthusiasm for that prospect. And these are factors of awakening. Uh, they, they become players to the extent that we can uh, relate in this way. But it also, as you can see, as you can imagine and see directly, is, uh, is this, compa- this humble quality, this giving oneself over, um, has, is, a, is a key player in the eradication of self-view. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's not that the you get surrender the self in some kind of self-effacing way. You know, it, it's more that one um, uh, sees uh, gradually over the years of practice that uh, the the me that thinks she knows everything <laughs> and the me that has to be on top of everything is actually an obstacle. It's a it's an impediment. And uh, I need to find a way to um, override her. Uh, and and uh, this, this uh, quality of humility and yielding and giving oneself over is very important. There, in my own practice, um, a number of years ago when I was doing a, a, three, a long retreat, um, I had one of those moments that I'm sure you've had where you're you didn't do it. You didn't go there. You, maybe you were caught in some state and the mind just let it go and for a few moments felt the, the, the clarity of an awakened mind, a mind that isn't entangled, you know. And I can remember feeling this um, incredible joy. I mean, the, the hair on my arms was standing up, the hair on my neck and uh, lower part of my head was standing up, you know. And I was so happy. And then I started to cry. I was like, where would I be without the Buddha? <laughs> I just had this booming thought, you know, where would I be without the Buddha? The joy of that, even just the most infinitesimal uh, experience of release is so great that one, it, it turns one towards um, uh, the teaching, or the teacher, more and more and more. And, and uh, it gives rise to tremendous gratitude. It, it makes one in, in, increasingly capable, interestingly, I've noticed over the years, of, of not only um, um, having this sense of appreciation uh, for the Buddha, but having uh, a sense of uh, appreciation for other people who I admire and respect. And that, that, sen- that quality, it seems to grow. I mean, Look and see. I'm curious if you have thoughts on this yourselves. But I think um, as you practice with refuge in the Buddha, the capacity for mudita increases. You know, you're much more able to uh, appreciate and, uh, and uh, uh, be grateful for the gains, uh, the spiritual gains of, of people in our lives. You know. Look and see. It, it's, uh, that's my own personal take on it. It's not, not from the suttas, but I've, I've watched it through the years. So this is all part of the, just the mundane part of um, going to the, the Buddha for refuge. Uh, and uh, it's, um, they, they say that practicing at that level has the consequence of, of uh, garnering a happy rebirth. But practicing at this level that we're calling the super-mundane or the liberating level has the capacity to take us all the way to liberation. And, and here's what um, the teachings mean by this level of, of refuge. This involves uh, making the effort to, to be with our experience increasingly from the perspective of the Buddha from the perspective of the knowing, the one who knows, however you frame that. And, uh, you know, we can talk about it, but it, it, we, we, we want to experience it. It's this, uh, first of all, just recognizing that that constitutes a radical shift. <laughs> that um, in the unawakened state, we are not with life from that perspective. 
uh, that things come into the mind, things come into the physical experience, things come at us from the world, and the highly conditioned tendency is to get caught up in it all, just to go on and on about it, to proliferate about it, to get tangled in, in one way or another, and so much so that we don't even know we're doing it. That's, that, that's our world, is the tangle. And, and um, this uh, uh, refuge in the Buddha is, is pointing to what takes place over the years of practice, which is a radical shift out of that highly and conditioned and automatic tendency to be, um, to be in the tangle. <laughs> you know, whatever's coming at us, the mind has something to say about it, <laughs> wants to do something with it, wants to go on about it in one way or another. And it's very hard to get your bearings outside of that until we practice. And in and, and practice, and to me this is what the four foundations of mindfulness are trying to get us to, is to see sensations, feelings, and thoughts, to know what they are, but to be aware of them from a radically different vantage point. You know, one, one knows sensation, feeling, and thought, but is not tangled in it and creating a sense of self around it, or going on and on about it, creating a world and then moving into that world. So, you know, it's, it's tantamount to the uh, attachment to the five aggregates. This is suffering. This is the Buddha's definition of suffering, or one of them, in the First Noble Truth. Uh, and that, that tangle needs to be seen and known uh, for what it is, as uh, the suffering state that it is. And, and the thing that I think we're pointing to here is that it can only be known from the knowing, <laughs> from a, a, a posture, if you will, or a, a knowing that is not in it, but that simply is aware of it. Uh, I don't know about you, but it, I mean, it took me years in my own practice to get it that that's what he's saying. You know, just to, to, to stop beating up on myself for being in the tangle, for getting tangled again, and um, then, then the mind turning to the only way it knows when it's suffering, which is to turn to the five hindrances, you know, smack myself around, hate it, want to be some other way, get agitated and anxious, or go sleep it off, you know. That, that, uh, that kind of response. And so uh, what uh, refuge in, in the Buddha uh, at the, in this um, uh, enlightened or liberating way is uh, increasingly um, being with all of that from a place of knowing. And this is, this is a, a fascinating experience, isn't it, over the years of practice, to see that grow. To, and to experience that uh, growing. You know, when I was a, a Catholic, we used to talk about the, the still, small voice. You know, the sort of like that quiet place in the back of the heart, mind, you know, no, knowing uh, what's going on. But as I practiced, uh, I, I used that same language, but I said it with a different tone, and I began to realize it was a still small voice, you know. It's, it's, it's just this little tiny little bit in the booth in the back in the corner in the dark of my mind. It, it's, so, it, it's, it's so weak in relation to what it knows. And this is, uh, you know, how we, how we begin to see in practice that, that this preoccupation with the objects of the mind instead of uh, the bit that is aware of them. That shift is uh, how we define the super-mundane refuge in the Buddha. You, you, the, 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 the knowing is getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and over time becomes the dominant feature of our moment-to-moment experience. It's not constantly being drawn in to the tangle. It's, it's quite powerful, isn't it? You know, one time, a number of years ago, I, um, I, I saw this in a very unexpected way. I was standing in front of the mirror in the bathroom, putting on my mascara, you know, 
and um, uh, suddenly, you know, you know how when you're doing well, not everybody knows what that's like. Maybe shaving, you know, but, but you're standing in front of the mirror doing something, <laughs> and uh, um, for me, it was putting on mascara, and the the image in the mirror is the dominant feature of the experience. Yeah? Whatever it is, you know, that's, the, that's what is uh, the feature, right? But suddenly in this weird way, you can't, I can't really describe, uh, it was like the bottom fell out for a moment. And um, in a flash, I was the one who was looking at the image in the mirror. I wasn't the image. Yeah? And try this. It's a, it's a fascinating experience. Um, and, and I know oh, radically different perspective. The knowing. The knower, however you want to say it. I mean, the, the way it's said in this, the loka we do, the knower of the worlds. The Buddha is the knower of the worlds. <laughs> not the thinker of them, not the one who's preoccupied with them, not the one who has something to say about it all, not the one who's caught in proliferation and papancha about it all. It's plain and simply this capacity to be aware of it, whatever it is in that moment. You know, there, there's something totally receptive and, and non-judgmental um, about that. You know, and, and so we see um, in that simple experience as it grows that, um, you know, that just that simple instruction that we have in meditation, relax, know what's happening, don't judge it, don't hate it. You know, it's right there. This is refuge in the Buddha. This is, uh, and, it, and it, we, it matures over years of practice. In, in Dzogchen, they have an expression for it, which I think probably appeals to me because I'm a, I'm a Leo, but it, it's called sitting in your royal seat. <laughs> and you get this image of, of royalty uh, sitting by the side of a parade, watching the dancers and the performers and all of the craziness uh, that goes on as the parade goes by. Uh, but, you know, they're sitting back and, and knowing it all, watching it all. You know, I like that expression. So one is situated in a place of, of knowing, and it's this soft, uh, subtle place that in some ways is the container in which it's happening. You might experience it like that. Or it's just the knowing of what it is um, that is happening. So instead of being caught up, we're in this decidedly different position. So your one is letting everything, sensations, feelings, thoughts, all of the habits of the mind, just arise and pass away. And that's the critical um, consequence, if you will, of being able to uh, fan the flame of um, this capacity to rest in that vantage point, to rest in life from that perspective. One is... um, not caught in the tangle. And so one is able to see what the tangle is. That's the whole process of waking up. It's sorting out what in the heck is happening here. But we can't do it if we're in it. We can only do it as this capacity to be, um, in a way, I mean the language fails, but you know what I mean. It's in a way it's outside looking on. I'm not caught in it. But, and, and from that vantage point, and only from that vantage point, can we um, see the Dhamma, see the truth of uh, the impermanent nature of things, that things are just coming and going, you know. I'm not doing anything, it's just all rising and passing away. You know, that every time I grab hold of it, every time I get tangled into it in one way or another, I'm suffering. You know, that, that, all of that, and that uh, I, I, can, I don't have the control over it, that I think I do, 
when I'm caught in self-view and, and uh, relinquishing, if you will, that grip and letting go and sitting back and um, learning uh, because one has um, taken a, a, a different perspective on it all. Very, 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 very powerful. We can see the way that things are. That's why it's aligned with, or one of the ways that we describe uh, refuge in Buddha. It, it's the capacity to see the way that things are. So when we go to the refuges, when, when we chant them, if we're paying attention and, and applying ourselves, what's happening in that process is that we're nudging the mind to remember that this is where we want to be. And that's the, the you know, magical aspect of it, if you will. I'm using that word in quotes, but you know, if we, it, it, it has to be experienced uh, to, to know for sure, but um, just watching how um, contemplating, recollecting the Buddha Dhamma Sangha does that. It nudges this mind. I can't explain it uh, to want to um, take refuge there. So there's a, there's a lot to this uh, this experience of, of refuge. And um, just one final thought. This is one that um, I, I chew. I've been chewing on for a number of years, but. Um, it's something I, uh, I read, it's in the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, where the Buddha says that, um, you know, if you want a key here, one who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. And the first time I read that, I thought, what in the heck is he saying there? <laughs> I had no idea what that means, you know. And I, I still can't say that I do. But, uh, you know, you, you, you look at it, you look at your experience and see if we can sort out what that means. And, you know, one, one way that uh, I'm discovering is that to the extent that we know from our own direct experience what it's like to be profoundly unattached to the body and mind, what that experience is like, then over the years of practice, the Dhamma will lay itself at your feet. <laughs> you know, you can't help, we can't help but see it. You know, it's, all, it's right here in front of us all of the time. But we're preoccupied with something else. Uh, and so to the extent that we can lose that preoccupation by being the knowing, then little by little, you know, the, the Dhamma will lay itself at our feet. <coughs> you won't be able to help but see it. So I offer you this for your reflection tonight. I hope in some small way it's helpful. Shall we sit for just a moment? <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.